Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we give you praise for the fact that you have faithfully carried out your plan throughout the centuries. You've never deviated from it. You've always produced the right people at the right time to defend your word against heretics, to expound your word, to teach you to us. And we ask that you would help us to faithfully learn from these examples and to carry on the mission that you have given us, you have set before us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to continue with the Church Fathers, part five of the Church Fathers. This evening I'm going to talk about the two Clements in early church history. There was first there was Clement of Rome, and he was just right around the, the beginning of the second century. And then there was Clement of Alexandria. So when you begin studying church history, it's easy to get these two Clements confused. So that's why I'm putting them together so you can better understand the distinctions between the two. He lived uh, towards the end of the second century. Just in case you're wondering, that's uh, Clement of Alexandria in Egypt, not Alexandria in Minnesota, just in case you were wondering. Uh, just saying. Um, now, of these two men, Clement of Rome and Clement of Alexandria, um, I'm, I'm quite impressed with Clement of Rome and favorably disposed towards him. Clement of, of Alexandria is basically good, but he does, he did hold some troubling ideas that brought about some, some aberrations in later church history. So we'll begin with a look at Clement of Rome. Some scholars believe, and it is possible, that Clement of Rome is the Clement that Paul mentioned in Philippians 4.3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So according to tradition, uh, the Clement of Rome was, was that Clement. Clement became a bishop or elder of the church in Rome. Clement was, was the first apostolic father of the church that uh, was a title that's given to Christian leaders who had known the apostles personally. They're called apostolic fathers and who had, had known the apostles on a, on a personal level. As I've been uh, setting before you the, the church fathers of the second century, I've been going in a basically chronological order, but I could have put Clement of Rome first I didn't do that because I wanted to talk about the two Clements together so you could better understand the differences between the two. The, the Catholics try to claim the early church fathers as their own. They try to claim that they were Catholics. Well, let's take a look at that and see if that really is true. In the 16th century, after the Protestant Reformation, 
the Catholics convened the Council of Trent as a response to the Protestant Reformation and trying to decide what to do about it. This was one of the decrees that came out of the Council of Trent. It says, if anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace uh, of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared or, and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. That means let him be accursed. Let him be devoted to destruction. So the Catholics were just horrified that anybody could possibly teach that they're justified by faith alone. Surely this was some new, some weird new theological innovation. Surely this was never believed or taught in the early church, the historical church. Well, if you go back and you read the writings of the early church fathers, you will find that that is exactly what they believed. Clement of Rome on justification by faith. All the Old Testament saints were honored and glorified, not through themselves, not through their own works or righteousness or righteous behavior, but through the will of God. And we too, who have been called through God's will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or godliness or through our own deeds done in the holiness of heart. No, we are justified through faith. For it is through faith that Almighty God has justified all people that have ever lived from the beginning of time. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that is true not only with the, uh, the concept of justification by faith, but by many other things that are, are thought of as Catholics, uh, as Catholic Catholicism. Hippolytus, a, a church father writing in the, in the third century, makes repeated statements that the bread and wine are antitypes or figures of the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, they symbolize the body and blood of the Lord. And that language is also found in Tertullian. The later Roman Catholic concept of transubstantiation, that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood, was unknown to the early church fathers. And that is also true with the idea of a, of a hierarchy, a church hierarchy. The epistle of Clement of Rome to the Corinthians implies the existence of only two distinct orders of ministry. Bishops or elders, the titles are applied to the same people, and deacons. This twofold order is apparent in the New Testament. Paul addresses his Philippian epistle to the bishops and deacons. Later New Testament writings, Acts 20:17 and Titus 1, 5 through 7, likewise illustrate the application of bishop, episcopus, and elder, as to the same person. A given congregation would have multiple bishops, elders, and multiple deacons. By the time of Ignatius of Antioch, and you may recall that, that was the, he was the first um, church father that, we, that I examined in this series, but by the time of Ignatius, Ignatius of Antioch, we saw a new leadership arrangement. It's called Mana Episcopacy. A single bishop would oversee a church congregation with elders serving under him. Thus, the two terms were differentiated. 
a bishop superior to the elders. This arrangement was seen as necessary to maintain a link to the apostles and protect the churches from heretical teachings. So remember that at this point in time, in the, in the early second century, the, the people that the apostles had appointed to be elders in the churches were still alive, were still living. So in order to protect the churches from outside heresy, um, it was important to have that that one person that, that the apostles had appointed, the apostles or their close associates that appointed to be in charge of the church. But to protect from heresy. The hierarchy which arose later in church history was a political phenomenon, a power structure designed to maintain control. That is the hierarchy which has come down to us today in the Roman Catholic Church and in other denominations. So once again, and, and just these three areas that we've looked at uh, in terms of the, of the, of the church hierarchy, the, the leadership structure, uh, transubstantiation, in, in all of these areas, we can see that a, a distinct difference between what the early church fathers believed and what Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholicism teaches today. So more about Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome wrote an epistle, the, the letter of Clement to the Corinthians. This was written in about AD 96. So it was around the time that John was composing the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. This epistle is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, extant Christian documents outside the New Testament. The date of writing is well established. The letter observes that some of the leaders appointed by the apostles are still alive. So that rules out any date much beyond the turn of the century. Clement wrote the letter to try to settle a dispute in the Corinthian church. In a conflict between the older and younger generations, the Corinthian Christians had dismissed all their elders and replaced them with new youthful leaders. Clement's response was to emphasize the need for good order in the church. He argued that God's purpose of salvation revealed a sort of chain of command. God the Father sent the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ sent the apostles, the apostles appointed bishops and deacons in the churches, and they in turn appoint their successors. A church must not disturb this chain of command by dismissing its officers without just cause, which did not exist in the case of the Corinthian elders. Clement therefore entreated the Corinthians to restore their deposed leaders back into office. The same kind of factiousness that Paul had earlier encountered in Corinth apparently flared up once again in that congregation near the end of the first century. When news of this turmoil reached Rome, the leaders of the congregation there were sufficiently distressed by this breach of proper conduct and order and the damage it inflicted on the good name of the Corinthian congregation. Clement wrote this long letter and mediators were even dispatched in an effort to restore peace and order to the Corinthian congregation. While the letter which was sent on behalf of the whole Roman church does not name its writer, well-attested ancient tradition identifies it as the work of Clement. Lightfoot, and he's a, a scholar who, who wrote a book about the Apostolic Fathers, he offers the attractive hypothesis that Clement was a freedman of the household of the emperor's cousin, Council Titus Flamius Clemens, 
according to one ancient historian, was executed on the charge of atheism. That was a frequent accusation made against Christians. The readers are asked to accept our advice, indicating that the document was intended as a, a deliberative letter, a category widely discussed by ancient rhetoricians, rhetoricians and uh, to which Clement's letter closely conforms. The appeal for peace and concord indicates the theme of the letter, one very much in keeping with contemporary examples, which often sought to resolve revolt or dissension, a term used nine times in the letter by an appeal to concord, used 14 times. Since the purpose of such a work was to persuade or advise about a future course of action, narrative was intentionally kept to a minimum. And that's why if you read this letter, you won't get many details about what was, exactly what was happening in the, in the Corinthian church because the narrative was not a big part of this. As in secular examples, the writer assigns blame, jealousy is a key problem, warns about the consequences of wrong behavior and extols the benefits of the recommended course of action. In addition to drawing upon scripture, words of Jesus and early Christian writings and traditions as sources of authority, Clement also makes extensive use of secular examples in his letter, some of which are the standard stuff of secular rhetoric. The portrait of cosmic harmony is largely of Stoic origins. The familiar legend of the Phoenix is presented as an object lesson of the certainty of God's promises of the resurrection. And the Roman army, a favorite topic of the Stoics, offers a model of proper Christian behavior. Uh, those of you who were at Sunday school on Sunday uh, might remember that, that Bob talked extensively about how Paul, when, when speaking to the philosophers at, at Athens, uh, was able to use their literature and their traditions and their, their lingo, so to speak, uh, their vocabulary to, to get across the, the message, the gospel message that he had for them. He made use of, this, of the uh, Greek philosophers and their understandings. Another uh, excerpt from Clement's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, this is Clement of Rome on the glory and necessity of love. Who can describe the bond of God's love? What human being can rightly tell the excellence of his beauty? The height to which love exalts us is beyond our speech. Love unites us with God. Love co covers a multitude of sins. Love bears all things. Love is long-suffering in all things. There is nothing corrupt or arrogant in love. Love allows no schisms and gives rise to no seditions, but does all things in harmony. Love is what makes all the elect of God perfect. Without love, nothing is well-pleasing to God. In love, the Lord has taken us to himself. It was because of his love for us that Jesus Christ, our Lord, gave his blood for us by the will of God, his flesh for our flesh, his soul for our souls. You see, my beloved, how great and wonderful a thing is love. No one can declare its perfection. Who can find anyone who is fit to dwell in love? Except those to whom God has granted such fitness. Let us therefore pray and beg of God's mercy that we may live blameless in love, free from all human parties 
that refer one person above another. So that's in the writings of Tibet. Although it is not known how the Corinthians reacted to Clement's letter, later Christian writers held it in high regard. It was quoted frequently. Some other ancient sources of information about Clement of Rome. Uh, he's mentioned in, in The Shepherd of Hermits, which was a popular writing among early Christians. Uh, he's quoted by the church historian Eusebius, and he's quoted by Jerome. There is a book called Second Clement, but scholars agree that this document was not actually written by Clement. It was attributed to him, but it was written by someone else. It is a sermon, it really isn't a, an epistle, it's a sermon or word of exhort, exhortation composed by an anonymous elder. Now, on to Clement of Alexandria. The history of the church in Egypt is veiled in mist before the sudden appearance of Clement of Alexandria in the last decade of the second century. So Clement of Rome is right around the beginning of the second century. Clement of Alexandria is towards the end of the second century. His biography is almost unknown, except as it may be deduced from his writings, which apart from fragmentary quotations and later writers, consist of an exposition of the gospel story of the rich young ruler some occasional notes on Valentinian Gnosticism. We've, I've talked about that before. And, and on biblical exegesis and his substantial trilogy. There are three important works that he wrote. The Exhortation to Conversion called Protrapticus, the Tudor Pedagogus, and the Miscellanies, Stromates, Stromates, which he never completed, by the way. Never completed Stromates. The Protracticus stands in the tradition of apologetic writing with an attacking note criticizing the superstition, crudity, and eroticism of pagan cults and myths, and observing that the great philosophers, despite their realization of the corruption of paganism, had failed to break with it. The uh, Greek philosophers realized that the that Greek paganism wasn't all that great, but they didn't really stand up to it. They didn't really take a stand against it. The Pedagogus uh, is a guide to the ethics and etiquette for a Christian moving in a cultivated society. Clement intended that the third volume of his trilogy should be entitled The Teacher, and it should contain a systematic exposition of Christian doctrine. Clement never wrote the intended study he felt that high matters of theology should be treated with reverence as being concerned with divine mysteries, and it would be dangerous to put into writing a full and extended statement for all to read. Instead, therefore, he decided to write a work of a very different character. Several pagan writers of this age published miscellaneous collections of antiquarian and philosophical interest, the form being deliberately unsystematic so that the subject would entirely change after a few pages. An extant Latin example of the second century is the Attic Nights of Aulus Melius. Uh, and similar works were produced by Plutarch, Alien, uh, Athenaeus. Clement decided to use this form partly, no doubt, because of contemporary uh, literary fashion, 
but mainly because the style particularly suited his purpose, which was to suggest rather than to prescribe, to throw out exploratory hints for the reader to investigate and consider at leisure, rather than to tell all that was in his heart and so cast his pearls promiscuously before unworthy and swanish readers. So he didn't want to just throw it all out there. He wanted to, to make people think. The content of the Stromatase may certainly be taken to consist of as much dogmatic statement as Clement felt it safe to make, but the matter is wrapped in a deliberately misty and elusive style that refers to put things in the form of a poetic reminiscence rather than in plain and straightforward prose. Now, now keep in mind at this time that Christianity is still an illegal religion. So it's not necessarily a good idea to just throw it all out there for everybody to read. If they're interested, they will pursue it. And, and you still do that today. I mean, when you, when you go out to evangelize, uh, you present the gospel to people in, in simple terms. You, you don't uh, give a full uh, course on systematic theology to everybody you meet. I mean, if, if they're interested, then they may ask questions and you may tell them more, but it, you keep it simple and basic to start with. The style, however, was more than a mere literary form adopted for tactical reasons. It corresponded in some degree to Clement's view on the very nature of theology that he should seek to express it in terms which suggested a reality transcending the verbal symbol. Verbal symbol. Uh, religious language, he felt, is akin to poetry. A certain reluctance to spell everything out in simple words is proper to it. Clement was not born in, in Alexandria. He had come there after various travels in the course of which he had learned from a number of different Christian teachers. The main attraction in Alexandria was a certain Pentanus, a convert to Christianity from Stoicism, a form of Greek philosophy, who was reported to have visited India. Clement says that Pentanus had the outstanding merit of combining high intelligence with fidelity to the apostolic tradition. Not a common phenomenon in second century Alexandria, where the influence of Valentinian Gnosticism was certainly very powerful. As Christianity penetrated the well-educated society of Alexandria, the choice for the convert seemed too often to be between clever, eloquently defended heresy on the one side and a dim, unsophisticated orthodoxy on the other. It was one of Clement's principal achievements to render this dilemma unreal and irrelevant. And Pamtanus seems to have helped him to discover the right way. At Alexandria, Clement found a church afraid and on the defensive against Greek philosophy and pagan literature. Gnosticism had made philosophy suspect and pagan religion so permeated classical literature that it was not easy to disentangle a literary education from an acceptance of pagan values and polytheistic myth. The method of the Stromates, written with very positive convictions about the truth contained in Greek philosophy and the value of classical poetry enabled Clement to present his position to the fearful Christian reader in such a way as to diminish any anxieties. He saw that philosophy, so far from giving support to Gnosticism, provided a rational method for its destruction. The Gnostics talked much of a higher reason 
but did not in fact exercise it. So the stromates moved from statements pressing the need for the study of philosophy to statements attacking the Gnostic heretics, and at the same time provided a well-constructed interpretation of biblical themes in language and categories familiar to the educated Greek world. Apologetic motifs addressed to the pagan outsider mingle with a defense of the true faith against Gnostic perversions of it. At one moment, Clement would be explaining that Plato plagiarized Moses and the prophets without making proper acknowledgments. At the next, that Greek philosophy, like the law of Moses, according to the Apostle Paul, was given as a tutor to bring the Greeks to Christ and as a restraint on sin. And at the next, that Gnostic doctrines of love and freedom ignore the fact that no serious ethic can dispense with giving a place to rules, or that Gnosticism places far too wide a gulf between God and the world, and far too narrow a gulf between God and the soul. Remember that, that dichotomy that, that the Gnostics had, that they believed that matter, material things, are, they're all evil, and they thought that the spiritual things were all good. Well, neither one of those is, is true, is it? And remember also that the, the, the Gnostics didn't feel that they had to abide by the same rules as everybody else did. And Clement of Alexandria made it possible, made, made it plain that, that um, you can't have a, a serious ethic without uh, having rules of some kind, some do's and don'ts. Moreover, Clement was sensitive to the difficulty that educated Greeks felt when confronted by the simple and peculiar style of the scriptures. In one passage, he presents a summary of the moral teaching of the Sermon on the Mount translated into the language of Greek philosophic wisdom. Yet he felt it necessary to reassure any anxious Christian readers that although the form of expression was not scriptural and there was no indication of biblical text, yet the content of the teaching would be found on examination to correspond with the New Testament. Clement found it hard to use the word orthodox without a half ironic apology. He was not sure that he was perfectly happy to be associated with those commonly so entitled. Yet he knew himself to be a committed defender of the apostolic tradition, which he believed to include a true knowledge, a true Gnosticism quite opposed to the false knowledge offered by the sex. The true Gnostic was not afraid of philosophy. He could use it for his purposes to understand what he had come to believe within the church and refute any adulteration. The higher life of the spirit is for Clement a moral and spiritual ascent. It was characteristic of the Gnostic heretics that they were little interested in virtue or in training of character because they didn't feel that they had to behave. Clemens, true Gnostic, knows that spiritual insight is given to the pure in heart, to those who humble enough to walk with God as a child with his father, to those whose motive for ethical action passes beyond fear of punishment or hope of reward to a love of the good for its own sake. It is an ascent from faith to knowledge, to the vision beyond this life, when the redeemed are one with God, symbolized by the Holy of Holies in the Mosaic Tabernacle, 
or by Moses' entrance into the darkness of Sinai. The roundless possibility of union with God is the image of God implanted at creation. The central principle of Clement's thinking is the doctrine of creation. This is the ground of redemption. Moreover, Clement believed that the God that God had implanted the good seeds of truth in all his rational creatures. So he was confident that there is much to be learned from Platonic metaphysics, from Stoic ethics, and from Aristotelian logic. All truth and goodness wherever found come from the creator. I wanted to make a comment about that. I mean, there's a great deal of truth in what Clement of Alexandria was saying. It is true that we are all created in God's image. But you can see how you can take this in a wrong direction. And throughout church history, many have taken this in a wrong direction. So from this, you might get the idea that we all have the spark of divinity, that all people are basically good. And ideas about the fatherhood of man, the brotherhood, or fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, uh, and that we are all God's children. So this is one of, one of the ideas that Clement held that could easily be uh, taken in a wrong direction. And later on it was. On the same ground though, Clement opposed the Gnostics who disparaged the created order by making matter wholly alien from the Supreme God with ethical consequences, leading either to rabid asceticism or to antinomian eroticism. That, that was the thing about the, the Gnostics. You would go in, in two directions. You could either become a, an ascetic where you didn't, uh, you didn't experience any of the pleasures of life or you go to the opposite extreme where you didn't think you had to follow any rules and you could just do whatever you wanted to. In a long review of the Christian sex ethic, Clement vigorously opposed the Gnostic thesis that sex is either irrelevant to or incompatible with the higher spiritual life. While affirming all respect for individual vocations to celibacy, he dismisses any suggestion that marriage is an inherently inferior spiritual status. And you can see how that doesn't jive with later Catholic teaching. On the same principles, he rejected demands that all Christians ought to be teetotalers or vegetarians. It was for him a matter of individual conscience, not a universal prohibition. But Clement was very far from a naturalistic hedonism when writing of delight in the goodness of the created world. The good things of the material order were, he directed, to be used with gratitude but also with detachment on the conditions given by the creator and with restraint. Clement wrote a special discourse to help Christians puzzled about the right use of their money and troubled especially by the absolute command of the Lord to the rich young ruler. If you would be perfect, sell all you have. On a rapid reading, it might seem as if Clement were merely a compromiser, trying to wiggle out of the plain meaning of a commandment. But a fairer reading of his tract shows that he did not see the gospel ethic as imposing legalistic obligations, but rather as a statement of God's highest purpose for those who follow him to the utmost. 
What really matters is the use rather than the accident of possession. Accordingly, Clement laid down a guide for the wealthy converts of the Alexandrian church, which imposed a most strenuous standard of frugality and self-discipline. Clement passionately opposed any luxury or ostentation, and much that he protested to be lawful, he regarded as highly inexpedient. So in other words, it's not, a it's not just a matter of can you do this, it's a, it's a matter of should you do this. The exposition of the saying to the rich young ruler in several passages in the Pedagogus and Stromates show Clement acting as a spiritual director. It lay in his nature, in, in his nature of his view of the Christian life as a progress towards the likeness of God in Christ that he saw it both as a dynamic advance in the comprehension of the nature of Christian doctrine and also as a process of education in which the aspirant would make mistakes, we all do, calling for repentance. The church he described as a school with many grades and different abilities among his pupils. We're all at different stages in our Christian growth, aren't we? Accordingly, Clement would take a view of the church which allowed room for the restoration of the lapsed and at the same time held the highest demands before all Christians. This was quite an issue in the early church because when times of intense persecution would come, many, some anyway, would leave the church. And then after the persecution was lifted, they would come back to the church. And some of those who had remained in the church uh, felt that they should be able to come back. And others who stayed in the church said, no, they shouldn't be able to come back. We stuck it out. We stayed with the church. They left. So there was a, a division over that issue. The seventh book of the Scromites, the last that he lived to complete, since the so-called eighth book consists of scattered notes on logic probably found among his papers after his death. The seventh book portrays the spiritual ideal of the true Gnostic, in terms which blend the high aspirations of the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4, 3, excuse me, Philippians 3, with Platonic language about the soul's assimilation to God and Stoic ideals of passionlessness. It seems to have been from Paul rather than from the Platonists that he had learned to regard the knowledge of God as a dynamic advance rather than a static possession. He once declared that if the true Gnostic were required to choose between eternal salvation and the knowledge of God, he would un unhesitatingly choose the latter. Well, that's a choice that God does not require us to make, right? He doesn't require us to choose between eternal salvation or the knowledge of God. He, he wants us to have both. Because Clement understood the spiritual life as a never-ending progress, this is key now, he did not think that the process of divine education came to an end with death. His sense of indebtedness to Justin and Irenaeus was not so strong as to make him look kindly on their all too literal belief in a physical resurrection to participate in Christ's reign for a thousand years on earth. So 
already we're beginning to see people moving away from that idea that was taught by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation and by his immediate followers like Polycarp and like Irenaeus. They believed that this was to be taken literally, but already we're beginning to see people move away from that. For the sinner, there is a burning fire, destructive not of the image of God, but of the wood, hay, and stubble of sins. None in this life can achieve such holiness that he will not need to be purified by the wise fire so that he may be fitted for the presence of God. Now, we can see in this the germ of the concept of purgatory. The idea that most Christians undergo purging after death. Most Christians will need to go pur undergo purging after death before they are fit to enter the presence of God. So once again, we see uh, some ideas that Clement held that uh, led to aberrations within the church later on. Clement's personal reticence allowed him to reveal little of himself, but his personal ideals are clear to see. In cultural background and in temperament, he could hardly be further removed from the militant zeal of Tertullian. Yet in between the lines of cultured dinner party conversation reflected in his pages, there is to be discerned a moral passion in no way cooler than Tertullian's. Clement is equally reticent about the external life of the church to which he belongs. He never mentions the contemporary bishop of Alexandria, Demetrius. And relatively little can be deduced from his text, which helps to explain the institutional development of the community. Like Justin Martyr, he did his chief work as a layman, working as an independent teacher of the Christian philosophy, instructing pupils in grammar, rhetoric, and etiquette, as well as in specifically religious matters. An uncertain scrap of evidence suggests that he may have been ordained a presbyter, an elder, before his death soon after uh, 215. If he was ordained, the fact of his ordination may reasonably be interpreted as an expression of a desire on the part of the Bishop of Alexandria to bring lay teachers like Clement under rather closer control. <laughs> so it's kind of ironic that um, the uh, in the view of the of the bishop, uh, the way to keep him from being a loose cannon uh, was to uh, ordain him, <laughs> keep him under control. I want to conclude by talking about some of the other church fathers uh, in the second century, uh, the, latter, the latter part of the first century, second century, uh, on into the third century. Just briefly mention some of the lesser known church fathers. The Pius was born in AD 60 and became Bishop of Hierapolis in Asia Minor. He was a disciple of the Apostle John and a close friend of Polycarp, who was also a disciple of John's. He died about uh, AD 130. Existent uh, writings, only fragments remain of Pius. There's one uh, fragment from Papias that has caused quite a bit of debate uh, among scholars of the New Testament because Papias seems to say, uh, there's debate about how this should be understood, he seems to be saying that Matthew originally wrote his 
gospel in, in the Hebrew language. So that's uh, caused a lot of debate, whether it was Hebrew or, or Aramaic, or did he really say that, that the book of Matthew, as we know it, was originally written in, that, in one of those languages? Uh, Mathetes uh, studied mainly under Paul, but testified he was also an eyewitness of the other apostles. Existent writings, uh, epistle of Mathetes. Tatian, this is an interesting character. He was a disciple of Justin Martyr. He wrote several good works, including a harmony of the gospels called the Diatessaron. This is the earliest harmony of the gospels that we know of. He later apostatized though from the church and formed the Gnostic cult known as the Uncritites. He then produced the Gnostic version of the Diatessaron. The uh, Incritites are an interesting group. Uh, they forbade marriage and they were vegetarians. Um, if you have a cult that um, forbids marriage, you better have a pretty steady influx of, of new people coming into the movement because um, otherwise <laughs> it's not going to last very long. Um, this is what happened to the uh, to the Shakers in, in this country, in America. They forbid marriage, forbid marriage so uh, they didn't have enough, uh, uh, enough uh, fresh blood, new people, to keep it going, so they eventually died out. Existent writings uh, addressed to the Greeks and, uh, and also the Diatessaron, the Harmony of the Gospels that he wrote. Aristides, an Athenian who in AD 140 dedicated an apology to the emperor Antonius Pius, Antoninus Pius, I should say. Aristides was a convert, converted philosopher. Seems that that was often the case that philosophers converted to Christianity, they made the, the best writers. They were able to compile good apologetics. Athenagoras, another Athenian, Athenian who had been a Platonist philosopher before his conversion. He addressed his intercession on behalf of the Christians to the emperor Marcus Aurelius and his son Commodus in about AD 177. He was especially concerned to disprove the accusations of atheism, cannibalism, and incest. Remember now those were accusations that were often leveled against Christians. Thenagoras was one of the clearest, most forceful and persuasive of the apologists. So the reason that Christians were accused of atheism is because they you couldn't just believe in your God, you had to believe in all the gods. And if you didn't, that was considered atheism. Cannibalism was a distortion that, that came about because um, of the idea that in, in communion, in the Lord's Supper, the, the, the bread represents the body of Christ, the wine represents the blood of Christ. And so many, uh, Pagans who disliked Christians accused them of cannibalism, of eating the body and blood. And incest, that came about because um, Christians talked about love feasts. And of course, that was taken out of context, so to speak. And they were accused of, um, of incest. And Athenagoras was very intent upon disproving those false accusations. 
Melito of Sardis, Bishop of Sardis in Asia Minor, who in his own day was a famous writer of many books. He was active in the period AD 170 to 180. The North African theologian Tertullian admired his writings, which sadly have almost all been lost. Now I have a, a special interest in, in this man, Melito of Sardis, and so I have a, a collection of, of his writings that did survive. Is a very interesting uh, character, has some very interesting things to say. Melito wrote an apology addressed to Marcus Aurelius. We also owe to Melito the first known Christian list of books contained in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, he, he made a special trip to Palestine to seek information about the Hebrew Scriptures. His list corresponds with the Jewish and Protestant Old Testament of today. And interestingly enough, once again, uh, it doesn't include the books of the Apocrypha that are included in Catholic Bibles. Caius, also known as Gaius, was an elder at Rome in the late second century. He wrote several works against the major heresies of his day. Not much remains of his works, except he is thought by many historians to be the author of the Muratorian Canon fragment. The Muratorian Canon is, is one of the earliest lists that we have of the, uh, the canon of the New Testament, the books of the New Testament that are considered inspired. Hippolytus was born in AD 70 and was discipled by Irenaeus. So remember that sequence First, the Apostle John, then Polycarp, then Irenaeus, and now we have Hippolytus. He continued Irenaeus' work by creating his own set of against heresies. This new set contains additional information on cults and heresies that were started after Irenaeus' time. He was martyred about 236 AD. Distant Writings, The Refutation of All Heresies was the title of his work and various fragments. Theophilus of Antioch, Bishop of Antioch, who in about AD 180, wrote his apology to Autolycus, an educated pagan friend. Theophilus tried to show that, tried to show Autolycus that idolatry is false and Christianity true, and that Christians are good, virtuous, law-abiding citizens. He had a very negative attitude to Greek philosophy, accusing Plato of having stolen his best ideas from the Old Testament prophets. Um, I, I like Theophilus for that reason. It, it seems like some of the church fathers were, were a bit too cozy, a bit too influenced by, by Greek philosophy. And last of all, we have Vinicius Felix. He's unusual among the apologists because he wrote in Latin rather than Greek. Most of the apologists that we have from the second century are writing in Greek. He was probably of North African descent and had a wide knowledge of Greek and Roman culture. He wrote an eloquent apology called Octavius that sets out the arguments between Christians and pagans in the form of a dialogue. And if you remember, that's what Justin Martyr did too in his dialogue with Trifo, the Jew. So it is um, setting uh, the 
back and forth between Christians and Jews or Christians and pagans in the form of a dialogue is a very popular thing to do. It's a very effective way to set forth the differences and, and show why Christianity was superior. And that's what he does. It demonstrates the superiority of the Christian faith to pagan idolatry. It is perhaps the most charming and readable of all of the apologies. You do, not, you do not know when Octavius was written, probably in about AD 230. So that concludes our look this evening at, at the two uh, Clements and also at some of these uh, lesser known church fathers. Next time we'll look at the, the bad boy of the church fathers, Origen. I'll conclude with a word of prayer now. Father in heaven, we are thankful that these men were faithful to you and that you were able to use them. And that you can use people as you see fit, even when those people are not perfect and they make mistakes, you can still use them for your purposes to advance the Christian faith to generation after generation to protect it and to preserve it and to keep people faithfully in your flock. We thank you for that. We ask that you would help us and give us the strength to continue in that tradition. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.